Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast, and I'm Eric Rivenis. Well, this episode that you're about to hear is an awesome one. All of the guests that I interview are great, of course, but this episode that you're about to hear is one of my favorites already. My guest today is Marty Link, best-selling author of, of many books, including When Evil Came to Good Heart and Wicked Takes the Witness Stand. Her book, Isidore's Secret, about a murder in rural 1907 Michigan, is the subject of our episode today. Thanks so much for joining me to talk about this gem of a true crime story. Sure, thank you for having me, Eric. I'd like to start by asking you about the title. When I first read it, Isidore's Secret, I assumed that Isidore was a person, but Isidore is not. Although, as we come to find out in the book, it's definitely an important character in the story. Can you talk about Isidore in 1907 Michigan? Sure. Uh, Isidore is a little community outside Cedar, Michigan, and Cedar is so small that most people wouldn't wouldn't have heard of Cedar, and Isidore is even smaller. It's essentially a four corners. So Isidore is a location, but I like that you picked up that it seemed like a character to you as well, because I thought of the place that way as I was writing and researching it. It certainly had a personality all of its own. Uh, it's remote. There's only a few roads that go to Isidore. And essentially what is there is a Catholic church and a couple of farmhouses. There used to be a general store, but that's not there anymore. So the church really dominates the town. And it certainly dominated the story. So your book begins on a lovely summer day in August. And an interesting cast of characters right from the start. I know I'll massacre the Polish last names, so I'll refer to them throughout the interview, as you do in your book, by their titles and, and their first names. Can, can you talk about how that day in August of 1907 began and how it 
progressed? Sure. Well, Sister Yanina, and that the J is it's a J, but it's silent. Sister Yanina was one of three Catholic sisters, three Felician nuns, who had been called to serve the parish at Isidore, which that whole entire community was Catholic, Polish Catholic. And she had um, supposedly taken a nap in the afternoon because she wasn't feeling well. And yet when it was time to wake up and go back to work, she was nowhere to be found. And it was probably a typical summer afternoon. Um, Father Andrew was quite the fisherman. And so he had taken their, and they called him a chore boy, um, kind of a handyman, although he was only a teenager. He had taken their chore boy fishing on Lake Lelano, which was nearby. Back then it was called Lime Lake. And so all of the sisters decided that they were going to take a nap in the heat of the day. They did that. And then Stella, who was the housekeeper, was busy in the kitchen working. She was preparing dinner. She was probably doing some dishes. And she had a young daughter who was doing some sewing. So when the afternoon progressed and Sister Yanina was nowhere to be found after the nap, the two, her two fellow sisters came to the housekeeper in the rectory and said, we can't find Sister Yanina. We don't know where she is. Let's talk a little bit about Sister Yanina. What was she like? What was her personality like? And how did she come to join the church? Well, Sister Yanina was really the reason, she was kind of the inspiration for this book. Uh, You know, there's any number of stories that I could have written about. And yet I think if there is a theme to, to my work, it's giving voice to the voiceless. Certainly in my other two books, there's some characters who, without having their stories told in a book, probably you never would have heard from them. And I think that's true of Sister Yanina. She was an orphan. Her mother had gone into a mental institution and died in a hospital, I believe, probably of tuberculosis. And her father had been killed in a car accident in Chicago. And so when the offer went out, who is going to raise this nine-year-old girl, the only people who stepped forward was the Catholic Church in Michigan. And so she was raised by nuns, and it was just assumed that that was going to be her role in life, too. That was the pretty much the only option she had. And I think that drew me to her as a character. And then when I looked into her further, you know, she was outgoing. She was musical. She was friendly. She had a lot of joy. And probably what really got me was when I when I researched being a nun at that time, I actually found the names in her graduating class. And there were 22 women who had signed up to take their vows and become nuns. And she graduated 22nd in a class of 22. (laughs) And so I thought, here was this woman who, you know, that wasn't her plan for her life, but, but uh, she really had no say. And so she tried to make the best of it. And which makes what happened to her, to me, particularly tragic. Sister Yanina's personality really doesn't fit well with the strict, structured, quiet life of a nun. But despite this odd couple situation, she really loved the parish, and she loved living in a rural community. She really enjoyed the countryside, the flowers, the sunshine, right? She did, and, you know, I can imagine her probably enjoying the students as well. You know, there wasn't a lot about that, but... If you were a, if you were a student going to school back then and being taught by a nun, I mean, you would probably 
probably gravitate to the friendly, outgoing one that played the piano and had sing-alongs rather than the one, um, you know, the disciplinarians. So she was quite popular. The townspeople liked her. Uh, her fellow nuns liked her. Everyone liked her. So to shift to another important figure in your story, let's talk about the housekeeper, Stella, and her daughter, Mary, who also plays a role in this. How does Stella come to be employed by Father Andrew? Right. Well, Stella Lipinska was also a Polish immigrant, and she was a widow. She had one daughter, Mary, who was getting close to marriage age. She was a teenager. And when Stella's husband died, she promised him on his deathbed in Poland that she would devote her life to the church, that she would never marry again, and that the rest of her life would be devoted to the Catholic Church. And so she came to America and uh, took the job as housekeeper at at Isidore uh, at Holy Rosary Church. And her role was to tend the garden, tend the uh, chickens and the geese, keep everything clean, uh, make all the food, help with the laundry. So her life became a life of physical labor. And one thing that makes that so daunting, I think, is her size. She was less than five feet tall, probably closer to four foot ten or four foot eleven. So imagine a woman who is a widow. She's also trying to raise her teenage daughter and provide cook clean provide all the food for uh, a, a very busy Catholic parish. It wasn't large, but it was busy. And so her her life from sun up to sun, sundown was physical labor. Sister Yanina is disliked by Stella, but she, she's beloved by the students, the other nuns, and by Father Andrew as well. She is. The two of them did not get along at all. They didn't care for each other. And Stella would constantly be grumbling about the sisters and how lazy they were and how they didn't help her with the work. And yet, on the other hand, she would she would constantly encourage her daughter, Mary, to become a sister. You know, don't get married. Become a nun because look how easy they have it. You know, look how easy their life is. So, yeah, there was quite a bit of tension between particularly Sister Yanina, since she was the senior of the three sisters and supposed to be uh, providing some leadership, and Stella. They did not care for each other. And she was really the polar opposite of Sister Yanina in every single way. Yes, she was. And try to picture uh, a girl who goes into the nunnery at nine years old. She's never had a date um, she's never had a boyfriend. She's probably never even danced with a boy. She knows nothing about the facts of life. And then she gets posted to this very remote rural church where I can only imagine that she felt kind of lonely, partly because of her outgoing personality. And a lot of these farmhouses were miles and miles away. and She didn't see the parishioners except for on the days that there was a service. And then in strides this six foot four, muscular, handsome, and very authoritative older priest. So something was bound to happen. Right. So she disappears on that August afternoon, and immediately Father Andrew is incredibly concerned. What does the father do at this point? How does he proceed? 
Yeah, he, he returned from fishing and, of course, had no, you know, no idea what was happening. So he and the tour boy pull up in their carriage to back to the rectory, back to uh, the Isidore Parish. And Stella comes running down the hill with the other sisters and says, you know, Sister Yanina is gone. She's disappeared. We can't find her. And Father Andrew is really worried. He He's kind of um, not very popular with the parishioners. They're actually afraid of him. The other nuns are afraid of him because he just has such this powerful, no-nonsense personality. And yet if he does have a soft spot at all, it is for Sister Yanina, and he devotes uh, the rest of that day and the entire weekend and all of the days to come in looking for her. He He looks... Um, with a tracking dog, he hires a private detective, he calls the sheriff, he gets the other sisters to constantly look for her, and as the months progress with no, no sister Yanina and no clues, he even spends hours all by himself deep in the woods looking for her. So Father Andrew conducts a really thorough search for sister Yanina, and almost right away he enlists his congregation to guard the roads at night, looking for signs of her or someone who might have done something to her. And on one of those nights, they all hear singing. Yes, yes. And if, you know, even if you go to Isidore today, it's still quite rural. There are places where your cell phone won't work. Doesn't matter which carrier you have, it's very remote. Some of those swamps that they looked through for her are still there. Nobody could, you know, nobody's ever built on them or farmed on them. And so if you go there, you can kind of get the feeling that they must have had when they were looking for her. And it is a, it is a little bit of an eerie place. You know, I left it pretty open in the book for people to interpret that as they will. Was it really a ghost? Was it Sister Yanina crying and asking for help? Was it their imagination? Or was it a prank? It could have been, it could have been any one of those things. But a reporter from the local newspaper was present when some of that happened and there was even a front page article on, in the newspaper about it. So it wasn't just heard by one or two people. It was heard by a number of people. And some of these were pretty rough characters. You know, they were, Father Andrew even enlisted lumberjacks who were, who, you know, who had been in northern Michigan cutting down what used to be our old growth forest. And even they got chills when they heard that singing. But the true, you know, the true uh, voice behind it was never really identified. Father Andrew does everything possible to find her, including, as you've already mentioned, hiring a man with a bloodhound to try and track her scent, even paying for it with his own money. Can you explain in a little more detail how they utilize this dog to search for Sister Yanina? Yeah, he does. Well, he takes the train. There used to be train service to Isidore, and he takes the train south to Traverse City, and he meets up with a private investigator with a bloodhound and then takes them back to Isidore to the rectory and says, you know, this is where Sister Yanina was last seen. And so they give the dog a pair of shoes to smell to get the scent. And then the dog takes off and they think, well, maybe we're going to find her. And only later do you learn that it was uh, Stella who gave the dog the shoes to sniff and she gave the dog 
not a pair of Sister Yanina's shoes, but a pair of her own. So there was no way that the dog even had Sister Yanina's scent. And, uh, but of course, no one knew that at the time. Father Andrew really seems devastated by her disappearance. And he has kind of convinced himself that she's skipped town, despite knowing, I think, in his heart that something more sinister happened to her. Would you say that's right? I think that's, yeah, I think that's exactly right. He doesn't want to think that she would have left him um, because they did have a relationship, and he doesn't want to think that uh, she she would just leave without giving him any kind of indication that that was going to happen. And yet at the same time, if he lets himself think, well, maybe she did leave, maybe she went to Chicago to visit her brothers, then he doesn't have to confront the idea that maybe she's dead. He writes a series of letters to her brothers as well, doesn't he? Yes, and isn't it amazing that 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 stuff is still available to find? Yeah. There really would be no book about this case if so many of the documents hadn't been preserved. As a writer, I was really lucky uh, that, that somebody kept all of those things, that they lasted through time, and by poking around and poking around, I found them. And so, yeah, he wrote a series of letters to her brothers saying that he was concerned about her, he didn't know where, he wa- where she was, and, and could she, when was the last time that they had seen her. And the brothers are completely taken aback because they haven't seen their sister since she was a little girl. How does the Michigan diocese react to Sister Yanina's disappearance? Well, there is a piece of information that the the diocese knows that they don't want to get out, and so they just sit on it. They They just, they say, well, gee, that's really too bad that she disappeared. We don't know what to say. We have no idea where she could be. Um, and they all, it's almost as if they're trying to put forth the theory that she's just a flighty woman, you know, that she d- didn't take her vows seriously and just took off. I think they would have preferred that people think that's what happened than what had really happened. One of the really fascinating things to me about the story is the divide between the Catholics and Isidore and the surrounding Protestant communities. These Protestants are already suspicious of Catholics to start with. And the disappearance of a nun makes them even more suspicious. Um, Well, they weren't looked kindly. Of course, back at that time, at the turn of the century, you know, they already were a little bit of outsiders. And so they wanted to portray this kind of this wholesome family, um, vibrant community that was adhering to the Bible. And so anything, anything out of bounds made them look bad. And so they certainly didn't want any of that stuff out there. And yet you can't have a community, even that remote as Isidore was, and not in certain ways engage with the rest of the community nearby. And so they still had to shop in the stores. You know, they still had to um, use a Protestant doctor who would come to, come to the rectory and, and treat their patients. And so they didn't have any choice. They had to interact with the outside world, but they really tried to keep that to a minimum. So the search eventually just fizzles out, and Father Andrew leaves the parish. Can you talk about his departure? Yeah, Father Andrew grew increasingly um, difficult for parishioners to deal with, and I think eventually they used the missing sister as an excuse to get rid of him. They were afraid of him. 
Um, they didn't care for how self-righteous he was. And the rumors started that he had had a relationship with Sister Yanina and might have had something to do with her disappearance. And while that was never really stated publicly, they were able to use that behind the scenes to say, to, to go to the diocese and say, we don't want him anymore. Give us somebody else. Transfer him to, to some other place. He doesn't fit in here. Um, he's not doing any good work here and get, we want to get rid of him. And that worked. That worked. And so he was replaced by uh, his polar opposite, someone kind, um, kind of passive, and a man who was forced to come to Isidore. He didn't want to come because he knew what he was walking into, all of this controversy. But for a short time, he had, there were a couple of different priests who came, came and left and came and left. And really, Isidore became sort of like the third rail. You know, nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody wanted to, to be the priest there. It's my impression that from reading your book that the Catholics in Isidore have difficulty embracing almost anyone new coming into their community, especially a priest. And they're really picky, right? They have high, yeah, they have high standards and nobody, uh, nobody is going to please them. Um, what does happen though is there's a, a rather young, ambitious priest named Father Edward who really has no clue about what has been going on in Isidore. He's not part of the Holy Rosary. Uh, he doesn't have a Holy Rosary background. He's from somewhere else. He is Polish, but he he decides that, yes, I would love to take the posting in Isidore, and, I, and it's going to be my crowning achievement. I am going to bring that parish into the 20th century. I am going to build a new church. And I'm going to be the talk of the town. Uh, they're going to love me there, and I'm going to provide terrific leadership that, you know, I'll be famous. Um, he was quite ambitious, and he saw Isidore as his, his stepping stone. Uh, he just didn't know what he was walking into. And this was 11 years later? It was, yeah, in uh, 1917. Well, I guess it was 10 years later. 1917 to 1919 is when um, Father Edward was at Holy Rosary. So the case of the missing sister basically just sits dormant for a decade. Father Edward arrives bright-eyed and with grand ambitions. And he is immediately told by the outgoing father something that had to have made his jaw just drop. Yes, he well he goes to a a gathering of the of the diocese and says, "Oh, well, and sitting, you know, having these fireside chats with other priests and he's kind of bragging. He's saying, "Oh, well, I'm I'm in this little town, um this little nowhere town in Isidore, but boy, when I get finished with it, it's going to be a force to be reckoned with because I'm building a new church." Well, the other priests who are there know what has gone on. They know that a nun has gone missing. They have some theories about where she is, and they say to Father Edward, what are you going to do with the nun who's buried in the basement? And he's, of course, aghast because he doesn't have any idea what they're talking about. And he just decides to ignore it, basically. He does. He thinks, well, this can't possibly be true, and I refuse to let anything get in the way of my ambitions. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I have the money to build a, a new church. I have the plans, and I have some of the townspeople's support, and, and that's what I'm going to do. So by this time, Stella has left. So Father Edward, of course, needs a new housekeeper. 
He does. He hires the daughter of a local family. Her name is Mary, and she's um, she's quite young. And he is also quite young. I do have a, a photograph of him in the book, and he's you know he's actually quite handsome as well. And so he and um, his housekeeper, she's a teenager, and they begin a love affair. Her, her name is Martha, correct? Martha, yes. Her name is Martha. So he and Martha begin a love affair, and he tells her, he kind of unburdens himself to her about what he heard when he spoke with the other priests, that there is a theory within the Catholic Church that Sister Yanina was murdered, in Isidore, that she never did leave. She never did um, leave her her vows behind, that she was murdered in the Catholic Church, and that she was even buried in the dirt floor of the basement. And so he unburdens himself to Martha, and this is the first time that someone who is not within the Catholic Church, either a nun or, or a, a priest, has heard the story. Anytime before that that story has circulated, it's been within the Catholic Church. This is the first time just a regular parishioner hears the story. She immediately goes to her father and tells him, and he tells the law. So it's interesting dynamic that although this story was known for a dozen years, it took somebody outside the church to break the news and make it public. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, 
Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. I have to to back up for just a moment here and, and ask you to talk a little bit about the reason for the discussion between Father Edward and Martha in the first place. They happen to be very, very close, and he unburdens himself on Martha after he's picked her up from a stay at the hospital. He'd, he'd taken her there earlier to get something done, and her personality changes, doesn't it, after it's happened? Yes, it does. Well, he and Martha have a love affair, and she gets pregnant. And she tells him that she's pregnant, and of course he's horrified, which it's always so surprising to me, you know, what did he think was going to happen? Um, but he decides that she, that Martha's going to have to go away and have the baby and give the baby up for adoption. That's the only, that's the only solution. And, you know, Martha, much like Sister Yanina before her, didn't have a lot of choices in her life. Everybody else made the decisions for her, her parents, Father Edward, although up until this point, she had she would not name the father. So Father Edward was still pretty much free and clear. Even though he counseled her family on what to do, she never revealed to them that it was Father Edward who was the father of her baby. And yet she is sent off. She has the baby. It's given up for adoption. And she's she's devastated by that. She has a hard time getting over it. And that's when the story comes out. It's just so astounding to me that Father Edward is the one who counsels this poor family on what to do under this this guise of impartiality when he bears half of the responsibility for what happened. Well, you know, your priest was a natural counselor at that time. That was who you went to for marriage advice. That's who you went to when your children were acting up and you needed help. That's who you went to when you had any kind of relationship problem was your priest and unbeknownst to them you know father edward had been the one who caused the problems in the first place you know wouldn't you have liked to have been in that room knowing what we know today and heard that conversation and and just as far as research goes i did i did fill out a formal application to be allowed into the research library at the diocese in gaylord michigan which holds you know, who knows what what kind of paperwork and research files they have. And and when it said your purpose, I was very honest. And I said, I'm writing a true crime book about the Isidore Nun, and my request was denied. So none of the information that I was able to dig up in many different libraries came from the Catholic Church itself. Boy, but I sure would have loved to have been let in those, into that room to see what they have. And that's obviously not a big surprise. I mean, you're talking about priests having affairs and a murdered nun. 
which is not something that the Catholic Church is, is looking to proclaim to the world. <laughs> right, yes. And yet, you know, the the story has some pretty amazing pretty amazing stories in it that that I think um show the Catholic Church in a good light, especially the one about the the stained glass windows that around before World War Two, all of these Polish farmers who had very little money pooled what little they had and they hired the Vatican's glassmaker to make new windows for the new church at Isidore once it did get built and it did. And then World War Two broke out and so they bar- they had those windows made. They were in Europe and they buried them until after World War Two and then they dug them up and sent them across the ocean and they made their way to Isidore and they're they're in in the church today and they're gorgeous. And so that kind of sacrifice, I think, was just amazing. That kind of dedication of the parishioners was just amazing to me. So I don't want, I don't want to give your listeners the idea that I was out to get the Catholic Church. I was just out to tell a really interesting story. Of course. You're simply presenting the facts of the story. Right, exactly. So to kind of straighten out the timeline on this, uh, there are a lot of pivotal events in this story happening pretty close together. So before Martha's confession to her parents, Father Edward again is in his final preparations to start the process of building the new church. And he plans on building it right where the old church sits. But first, he knows he finally has to deal with the rumors of Sister Yanina buried in the basement. And he decides, well, I can't just ignore it forever. Um, I probably should find out if the rumor is true. So he gets Jacob Fleece, who is his, you know, I don't want to call him a chore boy, but he is his handyman. He's a local guy. His whole family is members of the church, and he works as the sexton. And so he gets Jacob Fleece to accompany him uh, in, at night, Late in, late in the, or I think it's evening time, down into that dirt floored basement to dig. So if there are bones there, if Sister Yanina is there, let's find her, is kind of his thinking. So the two of them go down there with a lantern, and even though it's probably 7 or 8 o'clock, it's still so dark that they have a hard time seeing, and they start digging. And actually, that's the opening to the book. And I got claustrophobic just reading about this little trip to the basement. It's it's certainly not a pleasant place. The ceiling is low. They can barely stand. It's dark. The floor is dirt. And poor Jacob Fleas is handed a shovel, basically. And <laughs> potato fork. So it takes, it's kind of a um, shorter, fatter version of a pitchfork. So in one hand, he's got the potato fork, and he's just jabbing it into the dirt down there to see if he, if, if it, if it sticks on anything, and then on the other hand, he's got a shovel, and then hanging nearby is a lantern. And, yeah, it's only four feet tall, so they have to stoop over. Um, it probably doesn't smell very good. I would imagine it's really spooky with spiders and snakes and, you know, maybe some mice down there. And so he's digging around and digging around, and all of a sudden, to I probably Father Edward's shock, the potato fork hits something, and they start to dig. And what they find is are the bones of Sister Yanina, and she's been there the whole time. And they quickly realize that she's been positioned in a really uncomfortable way, right? 
Yeah, she's positioned as if she's kind of sat or kneeled down, and then the rest of her body slumped forward over her legs. So um, later it was decided that she was probably struck on the head from behind, possibly with a shovel. And the way that they know it's her is that Sister Yanina had reddish-brown hair, and there is some hair still, and it's reddish-brown. She also wore the traditional nun's habit, and there's parts of cloth that came from someone's nun's habit. But the way that they're positive that it's her is her the ring that she put on her finger when she took her vows, much like, you know, people get married when, when Felician nuns become take their vows, they put a ring on their finger as if they're being married to God or married to the church. And the ring is there, and it has the engraving that all the other women who graduated with her had. And there had only been one ring missing, and it had been hers. And the ring is there in the grave. And there is some speculation that she might have still been alive when put into this pit, right? Right, yeah, because it looked like... um, it looked like there had been some motion that she had been moving around, and there was also, you know, the there was there was evidence of that there had been blood, and it didn't look like it was in one great big, you know, that it had gushed out in one great big um, moment. That perhaps the blood had been trickling for quite some time, you know, as long as a couple hours. So yeah, the the idea was that she was probably buried alive, whether she was conscious or not, you know, I, I think is impossible to say. But although this is earth-shattering, and uh, certainly Father Edward and, and Jacob Please are devastated by what they find, Sister Yanina still has another secret, uh, and that really is the secret of the title. And that's not determined until a little later on, when, when the coroner examines the remains. But again, to go back to just after the bones are discovered, Father Edward notifies a few members of the, the Michigan Diocese eventually but he and Jacob Flees almost immediately conspire to cover this up, don't they? They do. They put her bones in a, or he, he, he tells Jacob, dig up her bones and put them in a box and then meet me, you know, at a porch, on a porch at, um, I think it was the Rosinski's house, at a local parishioner's house. Meet me, put the bones in a box, meet me on the porch at a local parishioner's house, and we'll decide what to do. So there's a gathering of a handful of trusted men of Isidore, and they probably all examine the bones in the box, and uh, that box is put on a sled, and the sled is dragged over somewhat frozen ground because it's it's October, and in October in northern Michigan, it's entirely possible that there's already been a couple of hard freezes, and uh, they drag those bones to the cemetery and bury her in an unmarked grave. Now, the, the legend says that a giant silver cross is, is placed where her grave is. Um, you know, your guess on that is as good as mine, because people have that giant silver cross is there in the cemetery today, and people have looked underneath it with infrared, and there's nothing there. But the last that I knew of Sister Yanina's bones at that time, they do surface again later, they were put in a box, the box was put on a sled, the box didn't even have a cover and uh, dragged to the cemetery in the dark and buried. And and no one was ever told, and there was no headstone. So they've got this cover-up established. And again, had Father Edward not spilled the beans to Martha, they most likely would have gotten away with this. And, and it would have been all over. But everything quickly unravels for Father Edward. Yes. 
So the police, of course, are notified and start an investigation. And their number one suspect becomes Stella. Why do they set their sights on Father Andrew's housekeeper? Well, she's the only one with no alibi. You know, they talked to people, and Father Father Andrew and the chore boy were in a boat in the middle of the lake, and there were witnesses. So it, it couldn't have been him, you know, although how easy to believe the priest. I think whenever anybody starts reading this book, they assume that he's guilty. And still to this day, when I talk to people who haven't read the book, they'll they'll come up to me and say, oh, the priest did it right. Well, not in this circumstance. He had a great alibi, and even though he may have been had the personality to do something like this, he didn't. So um, so it wasn't him. It wasn't the chore boy. It wasn't the two sisters, her fellow sisters, who had been asleep and could provide an alibi for each other and were so afraid of what had happened to Sister Yanina that they left They left the church. So, so their, you know, their innocence was pretty well established. Mary, the daughter of Stella, had been sewing and you know, was young and, and really didn't have a beef with Sister Yanina. They actually got along quite well, and Sister Yanina was her piano teacher. And so when they started looking at the things that Stella had said about Sister Yanina, it provided a perfect motive for her. And although by now she was in Manistee, an hour to the south, and working at another church, the police showed up and uh, and they interviewed her and eventually left with her and arrested and put her in jail. And the motive was jealousy, right? The motive was jealousy. Uh, I also think it was partly, you know, you hear about fundamentalist in terms of people's religion. Well, there were fundamentalist Catholics, too, and I think Stella was one of those. You know, she was pretty incensed. That right here she had devoted her whole rest of her life to the church, and yet right under her nose, a nun and a priest were having a love affair. And I think part of her was probably in love with Father Andrew, and to see him kind of sully his name this way with a nun, she just couldn't take it. So the police and the coroner examined Sister Yanina's body and discovered the remains of a fetus, don't they? They do. They do. And interesting for me in researching this book, when I interviewed people in Isidore, the very few who actually would let me interview them, most of them just shut their door a hundred years later and nobody wants to talk about this. But I did find a few people who grew up in Isidore and had moved away. They still lived in northern Michigan, but they didn't live in that little tiny community. And so they were willing to talk to me and even go on the record. And, you know, they said, um, that even after all of this time, nobody, you know, nobody wants to talk about it, but the rumor is that Sister Yanina was pregnant. So I knew that going into the story, but, you know, how do you substantiate whether or not someone was pregnant a century later? It, I just chalked that up to an impossibility, and yet it was always in the back of my mind when I was doing my research and then I ended up in the archives at uh, the University of Notre Dame in their, in their research library. And I came upon this amazing collection about the Catholic Church in Michigan and found Father Andrews. I don't really want to call it a diary or a journal because it wasn't that. But it was a series of sermon coupons that the Catholic Church would send to their priests to give them ideas on what to preach on any particular Sunday. 
And I came upon a stack of these that had belonged to Father Andrew, and he would write notes on them, sometimes sermon notes, sometimes just, you know, grocery lists. Uh, and on one of them, he wrote, and it's in his handwriting, fetus bones found with none, never brought out at trial. My goodness. And that was just a stunning moment for me as a writer. You certainly don't think you're ever going to be able to find the evidence <laughs> of something like that. Absolutely, yeah. That's just incredible. So Stella is arrested. She gets a, a couple of pretty competent attorneys, wouldn't you say? I would, yeah, I would. And they were pretty they were pretty devoted both to her and to her cause. Uh, they worked, you know, diligently to, to free her. They, they, um, I think that they probably, if they didn't believe in her innocence, they, they felt like, A, she would, maybe she was justified, or B, maybe we can get her off on a, on a psychological issue. So, so I have to ask about this because it's just so hard to believe. The difficulties that her defense attorneys had in representing Stella were just astonishing. Well, they initially, they wouldn't even let them see her. You know, here's their client. She's been arrested for murder. She's about ready to go on trial. And they can't even get in to see her and talk with her, uh, which is just, you know, that alone is criminal. I My own feeling is that, um, you know, I'm, I have pretty, pretty, um, I'm pretty sure that Stella was guilty, but I'm 100% sure that she did not get a fair trial. She just, you know, she didn't speak English very well. She didn't have any of her family members there. These attorneys didn't speak Polish. So they they couldn't communicate well with her, and they weren't even allowed to see her. And so they tried to speak with her through the window at the jail. And that, you know, that, I can, what, what would that have been like to try to interview your client through a window at a jail? And even then, when they managed to prop themselves up on this little window, a negative view of her in her cell, she's acting stark raving mad, isn't she? Yes, she's acting completely crazy. She's not eating. And certainly the sheriff and, uh, you know, and the law tries to take advantage of that. She hasn't confessed, and they want a confession because that certainly would make their job easier at trial. And yet she hasn't confessed, so they put a plant in her cell, and they put another woman that they say has been arrested for stealing, and they put her in the cell to try to get Stella to confess to this other, this female police officer, who, who by the way, they brought over from Milwaukee. You know, they had to go all the way to Wisconsin to find a woman who was a police officer back then in 1920. Um, but they do, and they put her in the cell, and uh, she says that Stella confesses to her but they they're not happy with that and they decide well the way to get a confession is to scare the bejesus out of her <laughs> and so they one night while Stella's in jail they lead her into a dark room where they have bones laid out on a table rigged up to wires with candlelight and they move the wires and make it look as if this skeleton is speaking to Stella and saying, why did you kill me? Why did you kill me? I mean, can you imagine? That's just so, um, you know, it definitely is a truth stranger than fiction scenario. And they do other things as well that we'll let listeners just read about. Some equally weird things with masks and chants. It's, it's just bizarre. Yes. So it, it seems that things are pretty stacked against Stella from the beginning. 
Let's go to the trial for a bit. Can you give us an idea about what the tone of the trial was like? What were some of the more memorable moments? Well, I think for me, you know, imagine a world where it's no internet, no television, not even any movies. A lot of people don't even have books to read. And so this, to them, had to have been just like um, the trial of the century. And they think of it as, the townspeople think of it as their entertainment. They show up, they take the day off of work. They load the entire family into the carriage. They bring picnics, and they picnic out on the lawn before the trial. And the the room where the trial is held is packed. And those who can't get in sit out on the lawn and listen through the windows. So, you know, it's just this incredible scene. And then there's little Stella, who has has gone crazy and doesn't speak very good English and doesn't have a translator And then in the gallery where they allow spectators are a dozen of Sister Yanina's fellow Felicia nuns, all sitting there in their full nun habit, their hands in their laps, and watching the trial unfold. A pretty pivotal moment is when the judge, in the middle of the proceedings, grants the nuns their request to come down and pray over the remains of Sister Yanina. Yes, he does. And it's right at the moment when her bones are slowly brought to the front of the trial or front of the courtroom. A table is set up and then her bones are laid out on that table as as closely as they can to approximate a full skeleton. And one of the one of the Felicia nuns stands up right in the middle of the trial and says, excuse me, judge, wait, may we have a moment with our sister? And he says, certainly, and stops the trial, stops testimony. And this these dozen nuns walk hand in hand from the back of the gallery up to the front of the courtroom. They stand in a circle around the table and they pray. So if anybody was questioning A, whether or not that was Sister Yanina, or B, whether or not she was murdered, that pretty much is eliminated when you have a dozen nuns standing around the deceased holding hands and praying. And even at this point in the trial, the defense has not been allowed to examine the remains, have they? No, they're not allowed. The the defense is not allowed to examine the bones until, you know, they see them at the same time everybody else does, except for the prosecution. And they've, they've asked and asked for Stella to have an interpreter, and that isn't, you know, the judge doesn't really give that any credence until partway through the trial, he decides, okay, well, maybe I should address this. And he points to a farmer sitting in the front row of the spectators and says, you speak Polish? And the guy says, yes. And he says, okay, then you're the translator. So, you know, it, it's impo- she certainly did not get a fair trial. I mean, for she was doomed from from the first time he, he hit his gavel. So Stella is called to the stand by the defense. How does she conduct herself? You know, she, considering the circumstances, she holds it together pretty well. Um, she... She doesn't cry. Um, she doesn't look shaken. She just says that she's innocent and that she didn't do it. She does admit that she had some harsh words for the sister and that it was very irritating to her that when she had to do all this work, the sister was kind of gallivanting and, and was lazy, but she maintains her innocence. So Stella is convicted 
and sentenced to hard labor for the remainder of her life. You'd think that Father Andrew at this point would have turned his back against the woman who killed his lover, but he doesn't. No, no, he does not. As a matter of fact, he's convinced of her innocence. I mean, he has to accept now that Sister Yanina is dead and somebody killed her, but he... You know, he refuses to, I don't know if maybe it's his own sense of guilt, because really he's the one that put Sister Yanina in harm's way. I mean, he didn't strike a blow. I actually think he was in love with her. But his bad choices and his charm um, certainly put Sister Yanina in harm's way. And maybe it was guilt for that. You know, either that or he believed that Stella was innocent. But he... he um, really works to free her. I mean, he writes letters to attorneys. He writes letters to newspapers. He works behind the scenes until finally he writes a letter to the governor and says, you know, she's been wrongly imprisoned and she needs to she needs to be let out. And if there's anything you can do, please, you know, please help her. And he's in luck because the governor is about to leave office and he's not going to run for election again. So he doesn't have to worry about what his decision, you know, if his decisions are not not sanctioned by the electorate. And so he um, he doesn't pardon her, but he does parole her, and he lets her out of prison. So Stella walks free when Governor Grosbeck leaves office. And how does she live the rest of her life? <laughs> she lives the rest of her life by being hired by another Felician um, mother house, this one in Milwaukee, and she goes across the lake, and uh, for the rest of her life, she is their housekeeper. A lot of this story revolves around the breaking of Catholic vows. Both Father Edward and Father Andrew break their vows, but the sacred secrets of a confessional were broken as well. And we really haven't talked about that, but this is what really points authorities to Stella, isn't it? It is. It's the only time on record that the Catholic confessional has ever been broken. You know, it probably has been broken thousands of times, but this one is on record. And that's my own theory as to why uh, the diocese didn't want to let me into their research library, because certainly that, you know, doesn't reflect well on the priests of that time. But yeah, they, um, Stella had gone to Milwaukee. And by the way, there was also a very large Polish Catholic community in Milwaukee, which is just across the lake from Traverse City, um, and Isidore. So Stella took a boat, went across the lake, and that is where she confessed. She confessed to a priest there instead of confessing to the priest in Isidore because she was afraid that it would that it would get out. She didn't want, you know, her own her own people to know what she'd done. But at the same time, she couldn't live with herself um, knowing with that on her conscience. So she took a boat across Lake Michigan, which today takes six hours. So imagine how long it, you know, how long it took then. And she confesses and then returns to northern Michigan. But the confessional is broken and the, the person who she confesses to tells one of the women who is another Felician nun, and from there it just starts to spread. And so that's why when Father Edward went to that gathering of priests and was bragging about building a new church, that is why so many of them were able to say to him, but what are you going to do about the bones buried in the basement of the church? Where can people learn more about your books? 
Oh, sure. Yeah, I do have a website. It's just my name.com, martylink.com. Um, and I have a calendar events on there as well. I also have a YouTube channel, so you can search for me on YouTube. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter. This has been great fun. What an incredible story you've uncovered, and your book is well worth a read. Thank you so much for sharing this. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I did want to just, I did want to just let you know that just as of last week, Isidore's Secret is now available on audio. So if you don't have time to read, you can listen to it on audio and you can download it on audible.com or iTunes or Amazon. So that's it for this week's episode of Most Notorious, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and again, if you'd like to support this podcast with a small monthly donation, go to www.patreon.com slash mostnotorious for the details. That's all for this week, and please have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.